You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 17, A Nation in Arms. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time on June 13th, 1793. The whole Bonaparte family had just landed at the port of Toulon. They were refugees twice over, fleeing the general persecution of revolutionary sympathizers on Corsica and the personal vendetta of Pasquale Paoli. They settled in the town of La Valette, about 30 miles or 50 kilometers from Marseille, the largest city in southern France and home to a community of Corsican exiles. The family was in dire financial straits once again, maybe even worse off than they had been after Carlo's death. Napoleon was still getting his captain's salary from the army, and Salicetti managed to get them into a government program to compensate Republican refugees, but the Bonaparte women had to take in work washing and mending clothes to make ends meet. This would have been unthinkable for members of the gentry in years past, but the exigencies of the revolution forced many families to violate those old, outdated social conventions. Once the family was settled, Napoleon left for the city of Nice, the main base of operations for the Republican forces in southern France. The revolutionaries had named the largest of these forces the Army of the Alps, but in the summer of 1793, invading Italy was nothing more than a distant fantasy. The Army of the Alps was fighting desperately just to maintain control of its home bases. When we last checked in on the government in Paris and the wider war, the revolution was facing existential threat, under attack on all sides, by an alliance of foreign powers known as the Coalition, and from within, by a royalist uprising in northern and western France. In Paris, the government was feeling the pressure. The poor and working classes of the city were becoming more radical by the day. They were still frightened by the military setbacks of the preceding year. The seizure of church land had stabilized the financial situation somewhat, but the sudden influx of new currency combined with the economic deprivations of war had led to a new problem, inflation. Food shortages persisted, worsened by the disruptions of war and rebellion. The poor, the radical press, and left-wing politicians called for price and wage controls, but the moderate bourgeois faction who ran the government known as the Girondins, remained committed to free market principles, convinced the best course of action was to do nothing. 
The revolutionaries had created a new legislative body, the Convention, but it was just as divided by factionalism as the old assembly had been. The grave new challenges facing the revolution only served to heighten divisions. As the government struggled, its main opposition, the Jacobins, gained momentum. Remember, this was the faction that Napoleon was affiliated with. They were the furthest left of the significant organized political groups. Two of the great titans of the revolution, Robespierre and Danton, were among their leaders. The Jacobins had a lot of support within the capital. They were seen as the champions of the so-called mob, hundreds of thousands of poor or unemployed Parisians who were politically engaged and could be a powerful, terrifying force on the city's streets, as we've seen in previous episodes. Since the government was headquartered in the city, the loyalty of the Parisian masses gave the Jacobins a huge amount of influence, and muscle. As fear of the coalition army gripped the city, the mood of the general population grew more radical, and the mob grew bolder, and so the Jacobins grew more powerful. By the spring of 1793, both Jacobin and Girondin leaders were openly threatening each other with violence. Late in the night of May the 31st, the Jacobins made good on their threats. Jacobin leaders launched an insurrection and seized control of the government. The ruling Girondins were out, arrested or fled, and the radicals were now in charge. Historians almost always refer to this as an insurrection, but it looks more like a coup d'etat, albeit a coup with popular support within the city. Many of the captured Girondin leaders were soon to be tried and executed. They are often considered the first victims of the infamous Reign of Terror. This all sounds pretty villainous, but remember, this was a period of existential national emergency. The government had not handled the crisis well, people were frightened and desperate for alternatives. Some had begun to suspect that, like the king, the moderates within the convention were secretly hoping for a coalition victory. It's also worth repeating that we're talking about a population of people that lived on the brink of starvation. The bourgeois revolutionary government had introduced sweeping reforms in almost every area of French life. But not much had changed for the poorest of the poor. Many had lost hope that the middle-class liberals in the convention would ever get around to addressing their needs. They wanted a government that would be responsive to them, that would treat the poor of Paris as an important constituency, rather than a nuisance, and the Jacobins promised to do that. The insurrectionaries may have had their reasons, but supporters of the ousted Girondin government certainly didn't see things that way. To them, this was illegal, unconstitutional, anarchy, mob rule. Obviously, they had a point. For many moderate liberals, the seizure of the government and execution of their leaders was the last straw, and just like the conservative royalists, they took up arms against the new government. Unlike the royalist uprising, their rebellion was centered in cities and towns, in the provincial capitals and port cities. Historians call this the Federalist Revolt, but I've never liked that term. It makes it sound like this was all over some arcane ideological dispute. Obviously, there were ideological differences. The Jacobins were more radical and favored a centralized government, the Girondins were moderates who favored federalism, but as is always the case, the reality was a lot more complicated. This conflict was also about class. The Jacobin leaders were middle class, 
but their main base of support was the urban poor. Girondin supporters mostly came from the affluent bourgeoisie, especially merchants and businessmen. There was also a major regional divide here. The concentration of poor workers in the capital made the Jacobins very Parisian in their policies and outlook. They wanted to centralize authority and spread big city culture and values to the rest of the country. The Girondins were also strongest in urban areas, but outside Paris, in smaller regional cities that were interested in preserving their autonomy and resented the way Paris dominated the country. France's two most important trading ports, Bordeaux and Marseille, both joined the rebellion. So did Lyon, the only real manufacturing center outside of Paris. Smaller regional capitals rose up as well, Caen, Toulouse, and of course, Toulon. The Federalist rebels were not well organized, not surprising given that they hadn't been expecting the sudden overthrow of the Girondin government and their base of wealthy urban supporters was quite small compared to the general population. Regardless, the revolt was a disaster for the central government in Paris. Between the Vendée Rebellion, the Federalist Revolt, and the advances of the coalition, the revolutionary government had now lost control of more than half the territory of France, including most major cities other than Paris. So when Napoleon arrived in Nice, he found a military headquarters in chaos as staff officers scrambled to redeploy troops to face the new threat of the Federalists. The main force in the area was the Army of the Alps, which was commanded by a very unlikely figure, General Jean-Francois Carteau. Carteau was well known in military circles before the Revolution, but not as a soldier. He was the son of a cavalry officer, and as a young man had attended military academies and began his own army career. Carteau was regarded as a promising young officer, but he soon resigned his commission to pursue his true passion, art. He achieved fame as a painter, specializing in military or hunting-themed portraits. If you were a wealthy man in pre-revolutionary France, and you wanted a portrait of yourself on horseback, looking tough and heroic in a military uniform or hunting gear, Carteau was the man to see. He was actually responsible for one of the last portraits of Louis XVI before his execution. In 1790, during that brief period of optimism when it looked like France might peacefully evolve into a liberal constitutional monarchy, Carteau had been commissioned to paint Louis in the spirit of the moment, as a citizen king leading the people on horseback with a tricolor cockade in his hat. As a supporter of the revolution, Carteau joined his local National Guard unit, where his military experience got him elected to the rank of lieutenant. He volunteered to serve at the front in 1792, and fought well enough that the regular army poached him from the National Guard. He had been a civilian for over a decade, and had never achieved high rank, but he was charismatic, well-connected, and had a first-rate military academy education. And so, with so many officers deserting, Carteau rose rapidly through the ranks, from lieutenant of the National Guard to full general in the regular army in only a year. Napoleon arrived in Nice with a letter of recommendation from Salicetti, which carried even more weight now that the Jacobins were in power. But he may not have needed it. The chief of artillery for southern France was a familiar figure, General Jean Dutay, 
the brother of his old commander and mentor, who he knew from his days at Auxonne. Dutte was in desperate need of reliable officers, and had a good opinion of Bonaparte. He was happy to put him to work. Napoleon was a latecomer to the war. All the glamorous jobs in the artillery arm were already taken. He was assigned bureaucratic odd jobs, first inspecting and improving coastal fortifications, then attached to the Army of the Alps, commanding supply convoys and handling procurement and logistics. This type of drudgery was probably not what a 24-year-old raised on stories of military glory had in mind when he envisioned his first war. But if Napoleon was disappointed, he didn't show it. His commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Elzéar Auguste de Domartin, wrote glowing reports of his energy and ability. Napoleon's assignment to Domartin was another stroke of good luck. Domartin was a brave, highly competent officer, and he and Napoleon got along well. Years later, he would be Napoleon's pick for commander of artillery on the expedition to Egypt. There isn't much glory in logistics, but Napoleon was well-suited to this type of work. He was meticulous by nature, and had a mathematical mind. His forceful personality was useful in prying every spare cannon and ounce of gunpowder out of miserly supply officers and local garrison commanders. If he was to keep the army supplied, Napoleon would need all the persuasion he could muster. The Army of the Alps was an extremely distant priority for the revolutionary government. The main theater of war was in the Low Countries, against the Coalition, where Brunswick's army had managed to get so close to Paris in 1792. Next priority went to the troops on the Rhine, then to the units fighting the Royalists in the Vendée. The Army of the Alps was an afterthought of an afterthought. A lot of Napoleon's success as a military leader actually came from his genius at these mundane organizational tasks. They may not seem important, but an army that excels at them will be faster, better equipped, and even fight better than its opponents. This was the period in which Napoleon began to learn those lessons that would serve him so well. Fortunately for the revolutionaries, and for General Carteau, the Federalist rebels were not nearly as formidable on the battlefield as the Girondins had been in the halls of the convention. This was a movement of educated gentlemen. They were well-suited to soaring oratory and parliamentary maneuvers. But by organization and by disposition, they were not cut out for the type of violent, total political war that the Jacobins and the Royalists were prepared to wage. On a purely practical level, the Federalists just didn't have much of a constituency. The Jacobins had real popular appeal among the urban underclass and poor artisans. So did the Royalists among the Catholic peasantry. There simply weren't very many people in France willing to put their lives on the line for the cause of moderate bourgeois federalism. The Federalist rebels were not able to raise very many troops, and those units they did form often suffered from lack of coordination, poor morale, and inexperience. Oftentimes, Federalist troops fought more out of fear of Jacobin reprisals than genuine enthusiasm for the cause. They had good reason to be afraid. Once in power, the Jacobins were not merciful to their enemies. As Robespierre himself so memorably put it, terror was the order of the day. 
Local tribunals all over France were given special powers to prosecute treason. Some operated relatively fairly. Others handed out death sentences indiscriminately with little due process, sometimes to children as young as 14. Members of the convention were dispatched all over the country on special commissions to investigate treason, like the one Salicetti had led in Corsica. These were referred to as representatives on mission, and by 1794, they would be present in almost every government-controlled department, as well as in many major cities and in the headquarters of all Republican armies. Just like the tribunals, some of them tried to operate honestly and humanely. Others engaged in unspeakable massacres. In the city of Nantes, near the heart of the Vendée Rebellion, representative on mission Jean-Baptiste Carrier ordered thousands of suspected rebels to board barges, sailed them into the middle of the Loire River, then ordered the ships sunk with the chained prisoners still inside. This was the time of the infamous guillotine at the Place de la Concorde, or Place de la Révolution, as it had recently been renamed. I don't want to dwell on this stuff too much. This is by far the most sensationalized and over-examined aspect of this entire era of European history. The period of the Terror lasted a little over a year. About 17,000 people were executed. I don't want to downplay that. A year is a long time for a country to be gripped by a political purge. 17,000 people executed is a tragedy particularly because so many of them were denied due process or convicted on flimsy evidence. But let's look at the broader context here. This was a country in collapse, whose government had been in a state of almost constant turmoil for over four years, and that was under attack by foreign enemies and facing two different internal rebellions. Once people within a society have turned on each other, the level of violence tends to spiral quickly out of control. In France during the 1790s, the typical viciousness of civil conflict was amplified by the war against the coalition. The Royalists and Federalists were not only opposing the government, they were aiding France's enemies, traitors as well as rebels. As Napoleon himself wrote around this time, quote, This is what civil war is like. People tear each other apart, detest each other, and kill people they know nothing about. End quote. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Given the circumstances, I think it would be surprising if there weren't killings. Human nature being what it is, some people did their best to hold on to their values despite the national disaster, while others took advantage of the exigencies of war to commit horrific acts. The terror is often depicted as wanton barbarism, bloodshed for the sake of bloodshed, 
that's an inaccurate caricature. Furthermore, the subject of our story was a Jacobin, so I think it's worth taking a moment to try to get into the rationale behind the terror, not to excuse it, but to understand it. The Jacobins believed they had been forced to seize power, by the gravity of the national emergency. The way they saw it, thousands of Frenchmen, from the king on down, had claimed to support the revolution, and then stabbed it in the back at its greatest moment of peril. The Jacobins and their supporters were angry, and righteously so. They felt justice demanded death to traitors. That might sound harsh, but it was quite a common view in 18th century Europe. The revolution was under attack from all sides, including from a diverse array of domestic opponents. That was plain objective fact, not paranoia. Who could say for sure there weren't more traitors, or potential traitors, within the revolutionary camp? Jacobin leaders believed in the righteousness of their cause, and they thought the only way to see it triumphant was with uncompromising harshness. Most of their enemies made the same calculation. This was war to the death, by all sides, at home as well as at the front. The Terror is just one particularly well-studied facet of a very dark time in French history. But amid these dark days, a new spirit was beginning to take hold among the revolutionary troops, a spirit of defiance. Large numbers of patriotic volunteer National Guardsmen were now fighting at the front alongside regulars. Thousands of men had flocked to join the regular army. This was also the summer of the levee en masse, when the government instituted mass conscription for the first time in history. On paper, at least, all Frenchmen between the age of 18 and 25 were drafted into service. The face of the army was changing. In earlier eras, soldiers were despised, considered little better than criminals. Indeed, many of them were criminals given the choice of taking the king's shilling or incarceration. The fact that many faced with this choice opted for a brutal, disease-ridden 18th century prison shows you what people in pre-revolutionary Europe thought of army life. The volunteers of 1792 were eroding that trend, and by 1794, the levee en masse would break it forever. The army began to resemble broader French society, most of the soldiers were not criminals, outcasts, or losers, but ordinary men who had left behind homes and careers and families to defend the Republic. These were the citizen soldiers Count Guibert had envisioned in his theories. Even with officers deserting and half the country rising up in rebellion, the ranks continued to swell with new recruits. When the war broke out in April of 1792, the French army was about 100,000 men strong. By the end of 1794, that number would be well over half a million. Overwhelmingly, these were regular people, peasants, urban workers, and, yes, even the bourgeoisie. As the Jacobin leader Camille de Moulins put it, they were, quote, our friends, fellows, citizens, and soldiers of the fatherland. End quote. The army was no longer some alien institution, isolated from the rest of society. The revolutionaries called it the nation in arms. When newly trained units left for the front, the residents of their towns came out to cheer and sing patriotic songs. That might sound like a pretty typical wartime scene, 
but it was actually pretty new. Townspeople hadn't cheered like this for the men leaving to fight in the Seven Years' War only decades earlier. Nobody back then thought much of soldiers, and many didn't particularly care who won some obscure squabble between kings. Now, with so many men they knew in uniform, fighting for a cause that touched their lives, ordinary people felt invested. The crowds didn't sing the Marseillaise quite so much as they might have the year before. It had been written by a Girondin, and no one in Republican-controlled territory was eager to associate themselves too closely with accused traitors. The anthem of this era of the Revolution was the Chant du Départ, or the Song of the Departure, which was written specifically about these scenes of new recruits leaving for the front. Part of it goes like this, quote, Victory sings, opens her gates for us. Liberty guides our steps. From the north to the south, the trumpet of war sounds the hour of battle. Tremble, enemies of France, kings drunk on blood and pride. A sovereign people advance. Tyrants, go down to your graves. The Republic calls us. We know to conquer or die. Frenchmen must live for the Republic. For the Republic, Frenchmen must die. On the iron, before God, we swear to our fathers, to our wives, to our sisters, to our representatives, to our sons, and to our mothers, that we shall annihilate oppressors. We will plunge all infamous royalty into deep night, and thus the French shall give the world peace and liberty. End quote. Pretty strong stuff. I love this quotation not just because it's so strident, but because I think it gives you an idea of the sense of mission the revolutionaries were trying to instill, both in the army and in the broader society. This was before the era of official national anthems, but the Song of the Departure was enthusiastically endorsed by Robespierre and used at official functions, so I'd feel comfortable calling it the anthem of Jacobin France. The surge of new recruits was a desperately needed lifeline for the Republic. But armies are made of much more than just men. Without training, organization, weapons, uniforms, food, and equipment, all you have is a mob. It would be hard for any institution to expand five-fold over the course of less than two years. The French army had to do it after losing most of its senior leadership while simultaneously fighting three wars. Luckily for the Republic, this monumental task fell on the capable shoulders of Lazare Carnot. We've discussed Carnot in past episodes. He was a military theorist, mathematician, and all-around Renaissance man. He was widely regarded as the greatest genius in the French military, but as a commoner, he had languished at the rank of captain until the Revolution. Carnot had been elected to the convention, and managed to get himself appointed to the Committee of Public Safety, now effectively the executive branch of the French government. The declaration of the Levee en masse had been introduced to the convention by Carnot. Many of his fellow representatives voted for it out of desperation, but to Carnot this was only the first step in a plan to completely reform the French army that he'd been kicking around inside his head since long before the revolution. Carnot saw that if the French army was going to successfully absorb these new recruits, it would have to become an entirely new kind of army, 
everything would have to change, from the system of armaments and uniform production, to training methods, to the organizational structure of the armies. With his new position on the Committee of Public Safety, Carnot had near-unlimited power to make those changes happen, and he threw himself into the task with nearly superhuman energy. But not all was well in the French army. The atmosphere of suspicion and harsh reprisals brought on by the terror hit the officer corps harder than almost any other part of French society. The military may have been changing, but there were still vestiges of the old royal army, conservative, aristocratic, and hostile to the revolution. No one knew for sure how deep those tendencies ran, and the Jacobins were not in a trusting mood. It was a self-reinforcing cycle. Officers deserted the army or defected to the coalition, so the revolutionaries put the army under more scrutiny and arrested or even executed officers suspected of disloyalty. Officers perceived this as persecution, and so more deserted or defected, lest they be next, and the cycle repeated. Even for an officer sincerely committed to the revolution, a friendship or some past association with a defector could be enough to get into serious trouble. Things got so bad that simply suffering defeat on the battlefield could be seen as strong evidence of treason. Understandably, many generals fled rather than face the guillotine. General Lafayette, who had presided over the Feast of the Federation, crossed over to Austrian lines. So did General de Maurier, who had led one of the armies that saved the revolution at the Battle of Valmy. The revolutionaries were right to be suspicious of them. Both men had been plotting against the government. General Luckner, whose Army of the Rhine was the subject of the Marseillaise, was executed, as was General Custine, who had replaced de Maurier as the commander of the Army of the North. These are just a few examples. That's how you end up with a portrait painter leading an army. But General Carteau was actually fighting much better than his experience might have led you to expect. The Federalist Rebellion was strong in the south of France. With the benefit of surprise, the insurgents had managed to seize most of the major towns in the region. Carteau acted quickly. He concentrated his forces and began retaking territory before the rebels had time to establish themselves. On July 25th, the Republicans captured the city of Avignon, a major blow to the rebellion. The Federalists fell back to Aix, an old medieval walled city with some significant fortifications. Captain Bonaparte missed out on all the glory. He was still toiling away at his logistical duties. He was commanding a supply convoy miles away when the city fell. In his limited free time, he still wrote... Ironically, it was in this period, when he was more committed to his military career than ever, when Napoleon produced his first work to gain any significant traction, a political pamphlet called The Supper at Beaucaire. If its author had not gone on to such fame, no one today would probably have heard of The Supper at Beaucaire. It's well written and was well received, but there's not much to distinguish it from hundreds of other similar pro-revolutionary pamphlets. Napoleon structured it as a dialogue between an unnamed army officer, clearly a stand-in for the author, two merchants from Marseille, a businessman from the city of Montpellier, and an ordinary citizen from the town of Nîmes. 
This conversation supposedly took place over dinner in the town of Beaucaire, outside of Avignon, hence the title. It's obviously highly fictionalized, which most readers probably would have been aware of. This format was very popular for political or philosophical writing. It harkened back to the Socratic dialogues of classical times. The degree to which it's based on actual conversations Napoleon was having at the time is unknown. The Supper at Beaucaire is better written than Napoleon's earlier efforts. The language is direct, much less flowery and bombastic. Clearly, he had grown up and gained confidence since his ill-fated attempts at literary fame before the revolution. Perhaps it's also a sign of his growing cynicism. Napoleon writes purely to get his point across, not to ape his literary idols or indulge in prose for its own sake. Marseille was the de facto capital of the Federalist rebels in the South, and so Napoleon sets up the two Marseille merchants as rebel sympathizers. They brag about the strength of the Federalist army, and the Napoleon stand-in shoots them down with his superior knowledge of strategy and military science. Quote, Your army, you say, is at X, with a large artillery contingent and good generals. Well, whatever it does, I assure you, it will be defeated. You have five to six thousand men, with no cohesion, no unity, and no battlefield experience. You say you have some good generals, but they will not be able to sustain the reputation they have earned, because they would need two months to organize their army reasonably well, and in four days, Carteau will be over the river Durance, and with what soldiers? You have some 24 and 18 pound artillery pieces, and you believe yourselves unassailable, following common opinion, but men with experience will tell you, and inevitable fate will prove to you, that good four and eight pounders have just as great an effect in open battle as large calibers, and are preferable from many points of view. You have gunners who are raw recruits, and your adversaries have artillerymen who are drawn from the regiments of the line who are, in their profession, the masters of Europe. What will your army do if it concentrates on X? It will be lost. It is an axiom of military art that he who remains in his entrenchments will be defeated. Practice and theory are in agreement on this point. The walls of X are worth less than the poorest entrenchment in open country. End quote. Looking at the language there, I think this is the earliest piece of Napoleon's writing that really sounds like him. It's confrontational, direct, and employs lots of short, tight, logical arguments. There are also some good one-liners, which was a hallmark of Napoleon's writing for the rest of his life. We can see in this passage some traces of the type of general he would become. His faith in the professionalism of the French artillery and the modern, lighter cannon of the Gribeval system and his belief in the flexibility of the attack over the use of static fortifications. The soldiers' arguments with the Marseille merchants are clearly directed at any Federalist supporters or sympathizers who might read the pamphlet. Quoting again, Acknowledge at last that you are being deceived. Understand the incompetence of your leaders, and be wary of their calculations. Pride is the most dangerous of counselors. You are naturally impetuous. You are being led to your downfall by the same means that have brought many peoples to ruin. 
playing on your vanity. Now that Avignon, Tarascon, and Arles have surrendered, you must admit that your stubbornness smacks of folly. It is because you are under the influence of people who, having nothing to lose, are dragging you into their downfall. What lunacy has suddenly taken hold of your people? What deadly blindness is leading them to their ruin? How can they hope to withstand the whole republic? End quote. So, some pretty naked propaganda there. Your cause is doomed. Don't let your corrupt leaders drag you down with them. Save yourself. Armies still use that line today. And of course, the Federalist sympathizer characters, written by Napoleon, are too overawed by this argument to answer. The second half of the pamphlet gets into politics, mostly refuting the idea that the Federalists are the true inheritors of the Revolution and arguing that their opposition to the government makes them de facto counter-revolutionaries. One of the Marseille merchants says, quote, The Vendée wants a king, and counter-revolution. The war in the Vendée is one of fanaticism. Ours, by contrast, is that of true republicans, friends of law and order, enemies of anarchy and the wicked. Don't we fly the tricolor flag? End quote. The unnamed officer rebuts him, quote, I know well that the people of Marseille are far apart from those of the Vendée as far as counter-revolution is concerned. The people of the Vendée are robust and healthy. Those of Marseille are sick and weak. They need honey to swallow the pill of counter-revolution. To establish new doctrine, you have to deceive them. After four years of revolution, after so many plots, schemes, and conspiracies— Moral corruption as a whole has developed beneath different guises. Men have perfected their natural guile. We should no longer go by words. We must analyze deeds. And you must admit that in evaluating yours, it is easy to show you to be counter-revolutionaries. What effect has the action you set in motion produced on the Republic? You have brought it close to ruin. You have impeded the operations of our armies. I don't know if you are in the pay of the Spanish and the Austrians, but certainly they could not wish for more powerful diversions. Every prominent aristocrat is anxious for your success. You have put avowed aristocrats in charge of your governments and your armies. Your battalions are full of such people. They would not join your cause if your cause was for the Republic. End quote. Napoleon ends the pamphlet with the diners drinking late into the night. The Marseille merchants end up buying champagne for the whole group, and are almost convinced to abandon the Federalist cause. The supper at Beaucaire is pretty sophisticated for a piece of propaganda. Napoleon doesn't depict the Federalists as stupid or crazy. He presents their grievances relatively honestly, and even concedes that the Jacobins are imperfect and have shed too much blood. The essay was aimed at Federalist sympathizers, so, Napoleon wisely struck a persuading tone, rather than trying to bludgeon them with rhetoric and emotion, as a younger Napoleon might have done. I don't think propaganda was the only thing on Napoleon's mind when he wrote The Supper at Beaucaire. From the earliest days of the Revolution, he saw himself as a political soldier, a man who fought for his ideals in the political arena as well as on the battlefield in his capacity as an officer. Pauli had defeated the Bonaparte's ambitions, but the brothers did not give up on their dreams altogether, merely transposed them from Corsica to mainland France. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I think the supper at Beaucaire was Napoleon's attempt to put himself on the political map in this new environment. People back home knew him and his brothers as the Corsican Gracchi, but on the mainland, they had no reputation at all, and few ties with any political faction. Napoleon may have been trying to define himself on the public stage, and signal his allegiance to the Jacobins. Of course, it wouldn't work unless the pamphlet was actually published and the right people heard about it. On this matter, he got another stroke of good luck. Napoleon and his supply convoy arrived in Avignon around the same time as the new representatives on mission who had just been assigned to the army. One of them was our old friend, Antoine Christophe Silochetti. Napoleon showed Silochetti the pamphlet, and he immediately recognized its value, both to the cause and to his own political career. Publishing the supper at Beaucaire would strengthen Napoleon, and since Napoleon was Silochetti's political client, he would be strengthened as well. Silochetti brought the pamphlet to the most influential of his fellow representatives on mission, Augustin Robespierre the younger brother of Maximilian, who now dominated the convention. Augustin was pleased and agreed to publish it as an official piece of government propaganda. As both men knew, the convention was desperate to find ideologically reliable young army officers, soldiers with genuine, demonstrable commitment to Jacobinism. Napoleon was now on the radar of the most powerful people in France. He was only a captain with very limited experience, but there were so few officers the convention truly trusted that simply being known as a stalwart Jacobin would open a lot of doors. Silochetti remained as faithful a supporter as ever, and the pamphlet had now won over another patron in Augustin Robespierre. Another representative on mission, Stanislas Frérin, struck up a romantic relationship with Pauline Bonaparte, Napoleon's sister, perhaps with Napoleon's encouragement. One of the only representatives on mission in the region who did not immediately embrace Napoleon was a young playboy named Paul Barra. Barra had been a soldier in the king's army in India. He was one of the most conniving, corrupt, self-interested men in the whole convention. Silochetti was a slippery character, but compared to Barra, he was George Washington. Barra was intrigued by Napoleon, but it took a lot more than words to buy his friendship. Still, all told, Napoleon was playing the political game very well. With powerful men to vouch for his political reliability, there was no telling how far he might rise, or how fast. 
With so many generals dead or fled, a new generation rose to take their place. Men who were too young to have held any significant rank in the old royal army, and so had fewer compromising connections to émigré officers. The war provided ample opportunities for these young officers to distinguish themselves, and casualties, defections, and executions created plenty of room to advance through the ranks. Lazar Carnot had a good eye for talent. He had been a bit of a celebrity within the French army before the Revolution. In that capacity, he had met a lot of fellow junior officers, and made a mental note of anyone who impressed him. Now that he was in charge of the war effort, he put those men in positions of importance, and helped their careers along and shielded them from persecution whenever he could. Meritocracy had been a core principle of the revolution from the very beginning. Now, after 18 months of war, that principle was beginning to bear fruit in the army. Talent was rising to the top. This was a new generation in the literal sense as well as in the figurative sense. François Marceau was promoted to general in late 1793, at the age of just 24. He was six months older than Napoleon. Louis-Nicolas Davout made general at 23. He'd been a year behind Napoleon at the École Militaire. General Lazare Oche would soon be appointed to command an entire army. Oche was just 25 and had only been a corporal before the Revolution. By late summer of 1793, Napoleon had a very good shot at joining that elite group. He'd made powerful friends, and his pamphlet and status as a Republican refugee established his Jacobin bona fides. He had a first-rate military education, and was a devotee of the same types of cutting-edge military theories as Carnot and the rest of this new generation of French officer. The only thing missing was a military record to justify further promotion. All he had to do now was distinguish himself on the battlefield, and he was certain to advance. Fate would soon hand him a golden opportunity to do just that. Within months, the Federalist revolt in southern France was collapsing. Just as Napoleon had predicted, their strategy was weak, and their disorganized, inexperienced troops were no match for Carteau's veterans. Marseille fell on August 24th without much of a fight. By the end of the summer, the old painter was closing in on the last major Federalist stronghold, the port city of Toulon. One of the heroes of the campaign was Lieutenant Colonel de Martin, the chief of artillery for the Army of the Alps, and Napoleon's commanding officer. De Martin was promoted to general for heroism during the final push on Toulon, but got himself so badly wounded in the process that he asked to be relieved of command. De Martin's second-in-command had recently been reassigned, so the position was more or less open. Napoleon's friends in high places pushed for his appointment to the position. Carteau was wary of giving the job to someone so young and inexperienced, who hadn't even been with the army for long. But Carteau was a cavalryman by training. He'd been out of the loop for a long time when it came to modern military theory and artillery technology. He needed someone with that kind of knowledge, and Napoleon fit the bill better than almost any other young officer in France. And so, Carteau let Salicetti and Augustin Robespierre talk him into appointing Napoleon Bonaparte commander of artillery for the Army of the Alps. With one caveat. 
it simply wouldn't do for a mere captain to be in such a high position. Some of his subordinates would technically outrank him. So, the appointment came with a promotion to the rank of major. Napoleon made it all the way from second lieutenant to major without fighting a single battle as an officer in the regular army. However unfair the promotion may have been, he would prove himself worthy of the position, although General Carteau would come to regret it. I think we'll leave things there for now. Before we go, I have an announcement to make. It occurred to me after last episode that we are now basically done with Pauli. His story is far from over, but he and Napoleon will never cross paths again, so he is effectively out of our story. I know Pauli is a bit of a fan favorite, and he's a personal favorite of mine as well, so I'm putting together a supplementary show on his time ruling Corsica and final fall from power. Like everything involving Pauli, it's a great story, and you can't quite tell if he's the hero or the villain. It will also be the first appearance of one of the most memorable figures of this era, Horatio Nelson, patron saint of the Royal Navy. It will be out soon, available free to Patreon subscribers, and for purchase by everyone else. Anyway, next time, too long. Major Bonaparte will finally prove his worth on the battlefield. This is a fateful moment. In every episode so far, Napoleon has been a minor, anonymous figure, with lots of potential but few tangible achievements. By the end of next episode, his patrons will be vindicated, and British intelligence will be warning their government to keep an eye on him. Until next time, thanks for listening. 